This is the Serial of Midnight Podcast, Episode 5. Hello and welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and this is a very retrotastic episode of this podcast. I guess they're all kind of retrotastic because I am a retro kind of guy, but it really comes through in this conversation. This week I'm talking to Arnie Shore. If you don't know the name of Arnie Shore, you know his work. Uh, we all love Rhino, right? Rhino Records, Rhino Home Video. Uh, Arnie worked at Rhino for uh, Rhino Home Video from 1986 to 2002. And you're going to see me referencing. If you're watching the video version of this, you see it. If you're listening to the audio version, I want you to know what I'm holding up. So it's the Rhino Records story. This is a book. The Rhino Records story, Revenge of the Music Nerds by Harold Bronson. Rhino was created. uh, It started as a record store and then grew into a a big company that was eventually sold to Warner Brothers as uh, sort of a specialty label. But for... A long time, uh, 20, 25 years, they were this, they were the cool kids. That's how I would say it. They were the cool kids that were like, oh no, this thing from back then, this is awesome. And Arnie played a huge role in this in the home video division because he is the first person to, he talks in this interview about how he acquired the license, the home media license for G.I. Joe and for Transformers. He tells us what he paid for those licenses and then he tells us how much those licenses generated in revenue uh, for that company, it's it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing acquisition, and that's at the very early end, the the very beginning of what we consider. I guess now we would consider it the nostalgia market, but it doesn't it didn't feel like nostalgia at the time. It just felt cool. Um, Arnie also, when he departed Rhino, went to work with Sofa Entertainment with the Ed Sullivan catalog. He's one of the guys that uh, brought those to home media. Uh, and there's a platinum award in, if you're watching the video version of this, you see it on his wall. There's a platinum award for his work with the Ed Sullivan show, releasing the Beatles and releasing Elvis. Uh, how many units those sold? He tells us again. And, uh, you know, I just reviewed, uh, there's a new time life box set of Ed Sullivan rock and roll performances. They call it rock and roll, but it's not, it's, it's everything. Cause it's. Beatles, yes. Elvis, yes. But also Buddy Holly, Carl, Carl Perkins, uh, The Doors, The Rolling Stones, The Love and Spoonful, The Birds. But then Motown acts, uh, The Supremes, The Four Tops, The Temptations, The Jackson Five. Everybody went through the doorway of the Ed Sullivan show. And I'm so glad that when that show went off the air that those performances were not lost. And so we get a little bit of the story of how those made their way to home video, uh, home, home media, home video. This, coincidentally, those Time Life DVDs that I just reviewed were in conjunction with Sofa Entertainment. After Sofa, Arnie goes on to found Rockbeat Records, some more entertainment, and now Liberation Hall. He tells the whole story uh, about how those those three labels are kind of the same thing. They're all him. They're all Arnie's companies. Uh, Liberation Hall is the one that is kind of going forward. We get a sneak preview here. Liberation Hall has some titles going into Record Store Day this November 2022 Record Store Day. In fact, I, I show them in the video, but if you're listening to this, I want you to know what I'm, I'm holding up. So I've got Judy in Disguise with Glasses by John Fred and his Playboy Band. That's a Record Store Day uh, uh, Black Friday release on uh, Psychedelic Purple Vinyl. It's a great release to Flying Burrito Brothers, uh, live at the bottom line, New York City, 1976. This is a great, uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty, it's not country rock as much as it's just kind of honky-tonk country, and I love that stuff. Big Bill Brunzi, live in Amsterdam, 1953, another great release, but this is my favorite, and uh, I don't want you to miss out on this. This is Young Holt Unlimited plays Superfly. Now, Young Holt Unlimited did not do the soundtrack for Superfly. This is an album of covers where they're covering songs from Superfly, and they do the definitive cover, in my opinion, of Could It Be I'm Falling in Love. Write it down. When you finish this video or podcast, however you're consuming this, uh, go check out Young Holt Unlimited, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love. This is on yellow vinyl. It is a record store day uh, title, and... What's great about this interview with Arnie is that he told us Record Store Day April 2023 releases. He told us everything that's coming down the line here. But this is really a celebration of uh, of pop culture history. And 
I wanted to speak just a little bit about what pop culture history means to me, give you a, sort of a an overview of the focus of the channel and why I talk about the things that I talk about, why I seek out the people that I do. So I'm the tail end of Generation X. I was born in the, the late 70s and I grew up in the 80s when everything that was being marketed to my generation, you know, it's a weird thing to explain that at this point in time, there was not enough new programming to fill the dial. And so I would come home from television and there'd be new programming, but there would also be Star Trek, the original 60s, you know, the, the 60s Star Trek, TOS. There would be Gilligan's Island. Um, I, I discovered the old right alongside the new, and there was very little distinguishing for me that, you know, well, this is old, this is new. It was all just awesome to me. And then along comes companies like... Well, I should mention Nick at Night, and I do in this uh, in this v interview because Nick at Night was they were fundamental for me. It was one of the foundational influences on my life because in the daytime Nickelodeon, you know, I'm talking about the '80s, you know, probably '86, '87, which is th those peak years that Arnie was, you know, getting started with the home home video label of Rhino. Um, Nick Nickelodeon would play, you know, like can't do that. You can't do that on television during the day, but then at night they would show classic television programming. So it was Leave it to Beaver or it was The Monkees or Mr. Ed or Lancelot Link, Secret Agent Chimp or um, Mary Tyler Moore Show, I Love Lucy, My Three Sons. And I loved it all. All this stuff was being shown to me in a way that made it feel cool and feel fresh. And then Rhino really specialized in exactly that. When I saw that, that oval, that red oval logo with the Rhino letters inside, I knew that I was getting something that had been certified cool by the cool kids. Rhino was the cool kids to me. Uh, and so all throughout my life, this is where I come from. When I would get out of school, you know, uh, bell rings in high school, I would, before I would drive home, I lived close to a thrift store. I'd hit the thrift store up on the way home and I was looking for Dylan. I was looking for Simon and Garfunkel. I was looking for disco records. I was looking for whatever I could get my hands on that was part of the pop culture history. Uh, clothes, vintage clothes, things like that. I remember a specific visit to the record store in the 90s where I picked up the cassette tape of the Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream, and browsed the Dylan and Beatles bootlegs. That's where I was. That's where I was coming from. Always had a foot in retro. And so that's the, that's the lifeblood of Serial at Midnight. Uh, I still love all of that stuff. Uh, old Westerns, the, the TV of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. For me, this is home base. This is not something I've had to discover. This is something that, this is where I come from. This is what makes this channel. And so history, you know, I was a history major in college. History is really my focus. And we talk about a lot of new releases on the YouTube version of Serial at Midnight, but it's, it's pop culture, it's movie, music, and pop culture history that I adore. And I want to share that with you. And Arnie is the same way. So, you know, I had a blast talking to him. I think you're going to have a blast listening to it. Over 40 years in the home media business, uh, award winner, the guy who knows so many people and has been responsible for so much of that pop culture history, finding its way onto our shelves and into our collections. I'm just going to go ahead and cut to the interview right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Arnie Shore. Well, that, see, that's one of the, I wanted to talk to you about, so I have this book and you're mentioned in this book multiple times. And, uh, they say, it talks about how you, they knew you were the guy for the job because you had original sixties, uh, music posters framed in your office and you still do, you still got the stuff back there. So that's great. What, what you can't see is a group of flaming groovies posters signed by Chris Wilson. Um, my gold. VHS um, and platinum VHS for GI Joe and Transformers, um, and there's a bunch of original flyers from early '70s, late '60s for the Fillmore. They used to make these little, maybe five by seven, five by eight cards, mm -hmm. and I was working in a gift shop. And they used to sell the posters. So every week we'd get a bunch of these flyers in and I kept a bunch of them. So they're framed. There's, you know, 
an amazing picture of Jimi Hendrix with the moving sidewalks. Moving sidewalks basically evolved into ZZ Top. I yep. The CD right here. I don't have the vinyl. I don't have the LP, but I got the CD. Um, yeah. You know, there's a picture of me with Chicago. Um, uh, uh, an underdog drawing that was customized for me with my name. So, you know, I, it's just, it, it's like my life hanging on the walls. You, it sounds like you've always loved this stuff. Did you, you just grew up, I know you describe yourself as a pop culture junkie. Is that, you know, you always have been? Pretty much. I mean, you know, it, it's, I was born in 1946. And I think my parents got the first television probably 1949. And until I moved to LA three years ago, I still had that television. It was a Motorola cabinet. The screen was about 12 inches. Um, so I started watching television really, really young. My mother used to tell me that I would walk around the house with a Lincoln lock pretending I was Ernie Kovacs. <laughs> I, I have a distinct memory of walking out of, this is the first apartment we, we lived in, walking out of what was my bedroom in the kitchen um, into the dining area and Les Paul and Mary Ford was on the radio. Just one of those little memories. And I was probably three years old. So wow. that era, you know, it's firmly ingrained in me. And then, you know, growing up in the sixties, you know, with all that music and, you know, getting into the record business, working at retail and, you know, Sweet Baby James was 498. And if you wanted it in stereo, it was 598. You know, it, it's, this is a different time. You know, one of the things that you, you've seen some of my notes, I shared a little bit of my outline mm -hmm, yeah. with you so you could see where I was going to go. I wanted to talk to you about how, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Generation X. We grew up in this, it's, it was an interesting time. Uh, I think in some ways I'm your, probably your target market because you're talking about GI Joe and transformers, but we're also talking about, you know, retro TV, the, like the original era of television. And my generation was kind of at the, the center point of all these crossroads because cable was there, but it wasn't what it would become. And we were, uh, really being served with a lot of television history, television and movie history that wasn't made for us, but we were just, you know, I'm thinking Nick at night specifically, like during the day, Nickelodeon would show, you know, you can't do that on television and, and these things. And then at night it was leave it to beaver or the Mary Tyler Moore show, or, uh, Mr. Ed was a big one for me. I don't know. I really connected with Mr. Ed. Uh, and it achieved this sort of cool factor and the tone of Nick at Night too was crucial for this because they would kind of have fun with these things, but they made it and it wasn't ironic. It wasn't snarky, but it was kind of a celebration through a more modern lens of all this retro entertainment. And it really stuck with me. And it was like a hook for my whole life. You know, like right now I'm watching uh, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet and I love it, you know, because it's so it's so unique and it's this artificial world that's so different from reality. But that's why I like it. Enter guys like you, you and the stuff that you did with, with Rhino. And I want to talk about all of that, but this is retro is really, really cool for me and for a lot of other people. And you're one of the people that made that happen. It's mashed potatoes. It's comfort food. Yeah. It, it, it reflects either the memories of living through that time when it was simpler, there was less stress or represents a time when things were less stressful. I mean, you watch Ozzy and Harriet now, the pacing is much different from what you look at now. Um, you know, it may have been a single camera. Um, I'm working on a series of releases. David Suskind, uh, you know the name? Okay. Yeah, but tell our, in case the viewers don't know. The okay. So David Suskind had an interview show and he interviewed everybody. Music, politics, religion, you know, 
everything. But he was also a very, very prolific producer. And he produced a number of significant, how can I put this? Teleplays. That's good, my mouse rose. No. <laughs> um, with major, major Hollywood film stars. And he put them on television. And, you know, of mice and men, Wuthering Heights, you know, Richard, um, Richard Burton. Um, amazing, amazing stuff, all done live. The Diary of Anne Frank. Um, and these things really haven't been seen since they aired live in 1959, 1962. We're putting these out. I'm getting blowback from people. We don't want to put it up. It's not been restored. And it's like, if, if you look at what the potential market is now and the costs of doing transfers, up-resing, up especially when you're starting off with kinescopes, and in some case, it's a tape of a kinescope. There's just so much you can do. And people... I don't think understand or appreciate the cultural significance of these television shows. They were live plays on television. Mm -hmm. If you messed up, you messed up. You brought up something I want to talk about um, quality. Now, is this a new conversation that people are having? You know, I've been reviewing movies for a long time here on, on, on the internet. And I feel like in the last, really been in the last three to five years, it's no longer necessarily about access. P the, the people that talk about these things, reviewers and things like that, it seems to be less about access and more about how good does it look? And uh, is that a new thing or has it kind of always been in the background? Social media. Yeah. You get, you get the trolls. It's terrible. And it's easy when you're sitting at home behind a computer screen and you see something that doesn't look the way you want it to look. And immediately it's the fault of the company that put it out. Mm -hmm. The reality is in some cases, I only get one segment of rights. So I have to rely on the elements that are delivered to me by the rights holder. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I have to live with that. And it's frustrating because I get trolls. It's terrible. You should have done it this way. It looks terrible. No, it didn't look terrible. It just didn't look the way you want it. It wasn't in the aspect ratio that you hoped for. But there was no upside for me to go back and get film elements, do new film transfers, up-res them, and then offer them. Because how many, how many DVD box sets am I going to sell at this point? Mm -hmm. Three, four thousand? It, it's just, it's not cost effective. So from, for me, I would rather see something that's less than perfect to have it, to be able to hold it and appreciate it for what it was because it's a moment in time and that moment's gone forever. And the only way you, you recapture that moment is to look at it. And it is what it is. It's frustrating for me. Yeah. So I know that a, a lot of these David Susskind teleplays will never get broadcast on TCM. Why? They're not perfect. So ignore the history. No, it's frustrating. Do you see a shift? I because see, this is this is what we're talking about. Is everything now is about? There's so much attention to quality and and less attention to historical accuracy. You know, I talked to. Um, if you if you're familiar with the label Kino Lorber, I talked to the senior vice, okay, senior vice president of acquisitions Frank Tarzi. I interviewed him uh, a month or so ago, and he was talking about how the older films 
uh, pre-codes, 30s films, even 40s films, the audience for those are no longer really growing. Westerns, I, I think I've got, you may be able to see them, I've got some Western box sets over here. Western interest is really starting to die off. And I love Westerns. Uh, you know, right now I'm watching some, those, you know, the, the original 30s and 40s Western heroes, Rocky Lane and, you know, Tex Ritter and guys like that. But it's not, a, it's very niche. Uh, and, and so I wonder as we continue this conversation about um, the changing audiences, is the shift going more towards quality and away from an interest? How, how do we reignite interest in some of this stuff or does it just go away? It, people are dying. People, people of my generation are dying. So the people who grew up with Mr. Ed, if they don't see the DVD, they're not gonna see it on television. I mean, when was the last time Mr. Ed was on television? Yeah, Unless you go on to Netflix, Prime, Hulu, Roku, wherever it may be, and you search it out. But if it's not on your radar, it's lost. Yeah, We're going to be releasing, Buster Keaton did a television show. And we found eight or nine kinescopes. Actually, the person who restored them. And he's restored them, and they look absolutely amazing. But who's going to buy them? It's the Buster Keaton fans, the ones that are left, collectors, and that's it. Because you're not going to sell enough product to justify any sort of significant, you know, public relations effort. Where are you going to buy ads? Because if you can't quantify the benefit, it just may not make sense to do it. So it, it's frustrating. You know, and when you look at broadcast, it's the other thing. When I grew up, there were three stations and then PBS came along and then some independent stations. So maybe if you were lucky in your market, you had five stations. In New York, maybe a little bit more because you had Dumont and, you know, all, all these other you know, quasi networks. But now the options and where you can see things and the volume of stuff that's available is mind boggling and the quality is excellent. But people looking at Mr. Peepers, for example, the show is brilliant. And Wally Cox was incredible. And there's a fascinating backstory on Wally Cox and Marlon Brando. But the pacing is slow. You can't afford to go back in and do the transfers and, and up res. And people just don't remember. And the people who do remember are in their 60s, 70s, 80s. They may not be literate enough to go in and actually search these things out mm -hmm. on Netflix, Prime, whatever the platform is. So it's just difficult to find. And people who remember these, they're dying off. Well, I mean, even, even if you look at, you know, TV land, what's TV land running? Incessantly, Raymond, mm -hmm. Two and a Half Men. Um, Comedy Central is like all the office, all day, all night, all the time. Where do you go to see some of these other shows? I mean, uh, the, the last week, um, I've been binging on the original Lost in Space. Because it's on, I think, Prime. And it's like, it's fun. It's in the background while I'm working. I don't have mm -hmm. to focus on it. But I can still appreciate the cheesy effects and the people who went on to stardom afterward who were appearing in bit parts. It's fun. It's fascinating. But the people who remember that stuff. One of my goals is to, I mean, that's one of my goals of my channel. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because that's my mission is to, to make, to share my love of this stuff, my passion with this stuff of discovery with people who might not be overly familiar with it. And I cast a wide net, you know, my, my, uh, my demographic, you know, my analytics show me that I've got everybody from, you know, really the, the 20s. They're in the you know, people who are in their early 20s all the way through, you know, 
people who are in their seventies and eighties, they're all watching, you know, and that's, that's really great because I love the stuff you're talking about. I have lost in space on Blu-ray, you know, Oh dear boy. No, dear. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, uh, these classics are classics for a reason. They have an imagination. Uh, sometimes the younger generation wants to, Oh, poo poo, because it doesn't have great CGI. I mean, you know, the, the sets are, you know, wobbly. Somebody slams into a stone wall and then the wall shakes or something nice. like that. And it's black and white. Oh, gross. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. But there, there are, there is hope. I do. I, if it makes you feel any better, there is hope because I do think that there is, uh, for everybody that's dying off, uh, people are discovering some of this stuff. And, um, I, I think that as home media has played a really good role in this, because as you say, you can't find it on television. You can't find it on, if you, some of it's on streaming, but I struggle to even find a lot of this stuff on streaming. Um, it just seems to have just vanished into the wind. Um, but there do seem to be, you know, as we discover, you know, it, it's, it, I don't know if it's a cycle. Westerns are, I don't know why Westerns don't connect with people anymore. I, I think they're great. Um, noir seems to be a great gateway. Film noir seems to be a great gateway for people. They're discovering um, the universal monsters also seem to be a good gateway. Horror is always the gateway to something else. I think they're, they're, those are timeless. I mean, yeah. I, I just watched, you know, Son of Frankenstein, you know, on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And those things hold up. You know, those are those are franchises. But, you know, it, it's a, a lot of these things are dumbed down. I mean, it, I look at my favorite Martian, the movie, as sort of the start of the dumbing down of America. The original series was brilliant. It functioned on a couple of different levels. And the movie just dumped it down and took away, at least for me, most of the charm, the concept. It was fun. Yeah. Well, can you name any movies based on classic television properties that are any good? I'd be hard pressed to name one. Probably not. No. They always lack the essence of whatever it is there. There's a Starsky and Hutch movie that almost feels like it's making fun of Starsky. And that's the thing is that they often feel kind of mean or cruel or it's that ironic thing. This is my the tone of comedy these days. And, and they always go comedy with these things is like, look at this a-hole. You know, it's like this real mean, condescending tone. But that's not in the original properties. You know, you watch my favorite Martian. Mikhail's Navy is a big one. That show is hilarious. Yeah. Um, I feel like they miss the dukes of hazard was it like why did they make a that dukes of, well, there's more than one too more than one dukes of hazard movie it's strange it it it, it is um and it's kind of sad but life goes on let's talk about happy things i want to talk about ed sullivan because you were instrumental in uh we you showed us the the plaque or the uh the the award there um yeah, the platinum award what what was your role? So Ed, for well, I'll let you tell it. Tell tell us about Ed Sullivan and bringing that to uh, new a new audience. So when I was working at Rhino, um, I had dealings with Andrew Salt, who owns Sofa, and Andrew is a prolific producer, incredibly skilled, and a very very incisive mind in terms of identifying things that have value. So he bought the Ed Sullivan Library many, many years ago. And he understands it's an asset. How many different ways can you slice and dice the asset? So I licensed, he put together videos of, of Elvis Presley's performances and we licensed it and we did a box set. The outside felt like blue suede. It was a very, very cool box set. And when I left Rhino at the end of 2002, um, When I left at the end of 2002, um, I pitched Andrew the concept of starting a DVD company. 
instead of licensing the stuff, put it out yourself. And we did. And eventually, it, it, it didn't work. We didn't sell the volume. We thought we got into a situation where I think we over-manufactured, so we had an excess inventory issue. And Andrew and I decided to sort of go in different directions. But we looked at the asset in its entirety. And we knew Elvis was viable, but we knew the most important thing we had was the Beatles. And how do you promote the Beatles? How do you make it something that's more collectible, more valuable? So decided to come up with four different boxes. Didn't do anything to speak of in terms of special features. It was just the original shows as they aired. So you got, you know, maybe Tody Fields and, you know, Senior Wences and the Beatles. Because we were presenting a moment in time. And it, I think it really needed to be that way. I mean, could we have put together, could Andrew have produced a program that was just wraparounds and interviews and then the song performances? Yeah. Would it have the same impact? No. Um, so we did really well. You know, we, we put it at Topo Gijo. Um, then you start dealing with rights issues. And Andrew owns the program. But you still have to get approvals on a lot of these things to release them. And the person who was managing Apple at the time was giving Andrew a hard time. So we negotiated, or Andrew did, not me, um, the right to put these things out for a period of time. And then they had to come off the market again. And that's what we did. And, you know, I, I think we were successful with the Beatles because it was the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's still Ed Sullivan stuff on television now mm -hmm. um, because everybody who was anybody in that era for music, comedy, they were on Ed Sullivan at multiple times. It's true. Uh, they just I just reviewed a Time Life put out a box set in association with Sofa. Uh, well, they've put out several box sets. They just put another one out. That's, you know, I guess what happens is the rights change. And so they have to drop certain acts off of the sets. And because I think the door, the doors used to be on the set and now that they're not on the set anymore. Anyway, uh, it's everybody. I mean, it's everybody that you can think of. It's Motown stars. It's uh, the Beatles. It's Elvis. It's uh the love and spoonful is do you know i've wondered this for a long time you actually worked with this stuff do you know uh, on the love and spoonful for performance of i think it's daydream uh zal looks at the camera and says something he, he just tries to do something on his guitar and it doesn't work and then he looks at the game he's like but i can't read his lips and i've wondered what he says for a long time nobody knows i don't know um I'll, if I can, I'll see if I can get an answer from, okay. from Andrew. He, he may not even know. I mean, the, the library is so dense. There's so much stuff in there. You know, it's it's the stones and the doors and, you know, bucking up against, you know, Ed, who was the ultra, you know, conservative. You can't say that here. And they say it anyway, because that was the era. Yeah. But, but Andrew also owns Don Kirster's rock concert. And the issue with that is he owns the program. But if you want to do a release of this stuff, you need to get name and likeness from the artists. And that can be a challenge because their perception of the value of this stuff may not be consistent with the actual monetary value. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes along and says, well, you know, we want a $10,000 advance for these three songs we did. How are you going to recoup that? 
Right. And they'll say, well, digital. And it's like, well, digital is a numbers game. If you don't get, you know, 500,000 views on this one song, you're not going to make any money to speak of. So it's, it's a challenge. Clearances are a challenge. Have they always been as much of a challenge as they are now? Because you've, you've been in the game for a long time. Yeah. It's more difficult now because you're not selling as much product. So, for example, on the, on the audio side, you know, licensing product from any of the major record labels mm-hmm. is almost impossible because the amount of money that they demand, it, it's either you have to buy finished goods from us at this price or we'll license it to you, but the royalty that you have to give us is this amount and you still have to get the music clearances. And you run the figures and it's like, I'm going to make a dollar a unit. It's not worth it because I have to float the money, especially when you're dealing with the issue of vinyl manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we don't have that in DVD, but, you know, we've been talking about doing a box set and we'd have to license master rights from major labels. So let's just say that's $10,000 in January of 2023. By the time we develop the packaging, get the music clearances, marketing, manufacturing, and then selling it for record store day in November of 2023, or maybe even April of 2024, we won't see money back on our investment until June, July, 2024. And the expenditures start in January of 2023. So it becomes an issue of cash flow. Mm -hmm. So the quantities of goods that you're selling, be it audio or DVD, um, you're not selling as much. So the cash flow becomes much more important. Does vinyl, has vinyl kind of picked up the slack where some of the other, where DVD or Blu-ray has, has trailed off a little bit? Has vinyl kind of risen to, to elevate things a little bit more? Vinyl is definitely a, a, a factor, but here's what's happened. You've got Record Store Day, April and November. They do an amazing job promoting. Yep. Let's talk about, we can talk about these two, but we can promote it. But here's, these are some record store, some early record store day uh, releases here that I have my hands on. This is my favorite. I just want you to oh, know. This is yeah, I know. This is the best. <laughs> it, it's on yellow vinyl. Yeah. Um, anyway, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to derail. That's but... okay. You've got two shots to get something out. If you've got a release, you know, Young Holt, and it doesn't go into record store day, it may not pay to press it on vinyl at all because retailers have a certain open to buy. And if they know there's going to be an April and November record store day, they have to budget for those two days. So unless you're a Taylor Swift or U2 or some other significant act, releasing vinyl if you're not in record store day often doesn't make sense. They don't also, Record Store Day doesn't want things that were previously available on vinyl unless they've been out of print for a very long time. So we're in the process, and it's been going on for a long time, negotiating for the Blasters early catalog. And, you know, we want to do a box set with the first four albums or first six albums because it's really a historical overview of the group and do in-depth interviews and make it a really deluxe box set. But if I can't get this out for record store day and get their support, I have to ask myself, does it really make sense to spend this amount of money and maybe sell a thousand units? Record store day may only be 2,000, 2,500. But 
you know, it, it's again, it's history. Mm -hmm. It's history. It's, the things that I'm most interested in in a record store day are always the things that are the hardest to find because they'll have, you know, my record store and I have a good record store. I'm a, I'm a crate digger guy too. You could probably tell, like I'm a yeah. guy, I, I like going to dig through the crates. They'll have, you know, 50 or 50 copies of whatever the Eagles or something like that. And then the things that I want, they order five. And the line is of course, down the block. And by the time you get in, everything good is gone. That's the challenge, right? Getting. Yep. The, yeah. I want to ask you about s'more and how did you transition? Well, let me take you through the process. Okay. Um, I left the Andrew about the end of 2004. And I figured, you know, I've got the relationships. I understand how the business works. I'll start my own company. And I found a distributor that said, okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars for each title that you release. So I had operating capital and I started some more entertainment. And we couldn't come up with a name for the company. And my wife and I were walking through, um, what was it, Bed Bath & Beyond. And there's a s'more making machine. And she said, how about some more? It makes sense. You know, we'll get some more. And it's, there's a retro aspect to some more. So fine. It became some more. This is in 2005 when the company started. In 2010, Richard Foose, who was the founder of Rhino, who I worked for for 16 years, who had consulted with after I left Rhino with his new company, they actually wanted to hire me to run the video division. Said, how do you feel about getting back in the record business? Okay, so Rockbeat formed. So now some more was visual media and Rockbeat was music. Fast forward to like 2019, 2020, somebody wanted to buy the company. So we decided, okay, no more new releases for some more in Rockbeat. And we'll start another company, Liberation Hall. And Liberation Hall, it's, it's just different catalog numbers for visual media and audio media. The sale of some more in Rockbeat didn't go through. So now we kept the company and we're mining the catalog for um, vinyl releases. Big Bill Broomsy was one we released years ago. Um, Hold it up again. Yeah. So it, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's a historical document. Um, so that's basically how it came to be. You know, after, after, Andrew and I parted ways. I started the company. And we've been doing it now. Wow. 12 years? No, more than that. What am I talking about? 17 years. Wow. Okay. What's lighting your what what's cranking your tractor right now? What's getting you excited? Where, you know, is there anything that's here's this is really what I wonder after, you know. 40 plus years in the business, does it just become kind of rote, you know, just kind of going through the motions or do you still get excited every day when you wake up and you're like, well, I'm talking about, you know, the blasters catalog today. Yeah. And that's exciting. Um, I just made a deal and I'll probably sign it today or tomorrow. Um, about 10 years after Alf went off the air, they did a feature length movie, television movie. Mm-hmm with John Shuck and Martin Sheen and Miguel Ferrer, we got the rights for it. And the movie actually holds up really well. The original cast is not there other than Alf. They're, I think they're referenced once, but it's Alf. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it turns out that um, Shelf Factory, which is the company that Richard is the chairman of, has the rights to television series. So, you know, it, it's, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the Buster Keaton, not because it's going to sell enormous quantities, but for the simple reason, historically, 
it's significant. Um, I'm, I'm looking here. You know, just to give you an idea of what's coming. In January of 2023, we got everything from Carlos Montoya. And then because it's now after the holdback time for Record Store Day, there's a Chet Baker, a Screaming Jay Hawkins, and a Dave Van Ronk vinyl. So whatever did not sell in that record store pressing, or if they sold out, we've now made more, and those three vinyls would be available. Um, in February, APB, which is a Scottish rock band, and then, what you just saw, John Fred, The Knack, Live at the House of Blues, Young Holt, that vinyl will be available again. Excellent. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, uh, we've got from Suskind, um, this thing called Noon Wine. And uh, it's from 1966, and it's directed by Sam Peckinpah a Darlene Love concert that's going to be DVD and audio um, that she recorded just after the point she'd been cleaning houses. So financially, she was in dire straits and she had a resurgence of interest in the mid 80s. That's when this was recorded. Um, we picked up a library of punk and new wave artists from like 1979 to 1981 that were all recorded in San Francisco. And we're releasing these on, on physical goods selectively. One of them is a group called the King Snakes. Um, and it's led by a guy named D Daniel G. Renault, who's French. He's a prototypical rocker. He still busks on the, the tube in London. Wow. But he's well known as the Camden cat. You know, he's the one who's keeping music alive in, in Camden. Um, you know, we, we've got Jane Eyre, um, Swiss Family Robinson, with an early Dennis Hopper appearance. Patty Duke, Dennis Hopper. Um, Record store day for April. And this is as far as we've really done it. We've got Phil Oaks, Best of the Rest, Rare and Unreleased Recordings. That's a double album. Muddy Waters, Hollywood Blue Summit at the Ash Grove. Wow. Charlie Parker, Afro-Cuban Bop, Long Lost Bird Live Recordings. Eddie Money, doing an album of covers. Boston Nova at Carnegie Hall. Sir Douglas Quintet, Texas Tornadoes, live at the Troubadour from 1971. And Romeo Void, um, live from Abuhay Gardens, 1980. So we got seven records into record story, which is really significant. But the range of music is consistent with what we're doing with the range of video, DVD. Mm -hmm. Where it's stuff from the 50s all the way up to like, you know, the 80s. Anything beyond that, you know, it's movies. And, you know, some are suspect. They're not really great. But there's some value to them somewhere along the line. Well, that's what it comes down to is historical value and keeping this stuff alive so that it doesn't disappear and it doesn't become a distant memory or is just lost altogether. That's the biggest concern that I have is that things are just going to get lost because as soon as they're not sexy, where do they go? To us. There was a saying at Rhino. Um, eventually, everybody winds up on Rhino. And it was actually kind of true. Um but, you know, we did things there. I chased the rights to G.I. Joe, Transformers, and My Little Pony for a long time. And they were originally held by a company called Sunbow. We negotiated the terms. Then Sunbow was sold to another company. 
I negotiated that company. I said, look, we have a deal with Sunbow. We want to carry you. Sure. And then it was bought by Sony. And I figure we're dead in the water. So I negotiated with Sony. And Sony's perspective was, eh, you know, it's the 80s. It's, it's an animated television program based on toys. Nobody's going to care. So we got the rights. There's no digital there. It was just physical on G.I. Joe for $50,000 and Transformers for $50,000. I'm still in touch with a woman who did marketing for us. She said we generated gross about $8 million in revenues on Transformers. And because of our success, we sort of made it easier for them to say, you know, this is worth redoing. We need to new, have a new Transformers. And they did new Transformers in movies. And, you know, it's nice to at least believe that the reason those movies got made is because we showed they were viable and people loved them and they were comfortable with it. And again, it, it, it harkens back to a simpler time in their lives. Mm-hmm. And which is brought into the, the present. Did you see that coming? So you, we're, we're talking about the 80s nostalgia boom is really what we're talking about, which is my generation. Um, you know, people my age, we, like they have G.I. Joe tattoos and stuff. I mean, they've branded themselves with their childhoods. Did you see that coming or was it just a shot in the dark to see if it was still a good business decision? You know, it, it, it's, you have no knowledge. It was just a sense. I understood the value. Um, I remembered how big the television series was mm-hmm. and, you know, there were the toys and, you know, it, it was pervasive. And uh, to a certain extent, I look at how pervasive or intrusive they were into our culture. So I look at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as sort of a farce because you could not escape hearing Bad Company in the 70s. You could not escape hearing Steppenwolf in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, imagine Easy Rider without Steppenwolf. They're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you look at some of the people who are in there, they were critical darlings and they were significant, but did they have the same degree of significance? But there's still value in this stuff. Again, I'll go back to the the, the mashed potatoes illusion um, where you're really, you're looking for something that brings back memories of when times were simpler. I think everybody on some level these days is stressed. And it's really nice going back and watching Lost in Space or Mr. Ed, and you're sort of transported to that period of time, that moment in time when it's like, this is fun. You know, there's no pressure. There's no stress. You can just, there's no hidden meaning to Mr. Ed. It's a freaking talking horse. The other thing I really love is connections. Knowing that Alan Young was in the original time machine. Um, you know, Rod Taylor doing a television series called Hong Kong that most people don't remember. That was wonderful. There, there's so many visual connections as you look at these old shows. I mean, Lost in Space, it was Michael and Sarah, you know, um, just fun things. And I know Billy Mooney because Billy is in a group called Barnes and Barnes who did fish heads. So, and I worked with Billy as art. Um, the other, the, the other guy is known as Artie and I worked with his, his wife. So it just, it's all these connections. Yeah. 
that's the fun of being someone who's into, you know, what we're talking about is you see, you start to connect these dots. And that's my advice for people when they first start to approach retro entertainment or whatever we're calling it, older films and older television shows is once you start to see, you know, oh, well, this guest starred Michael Ansara, who was also in this movie or he, you know, Barbara Eden, I dream a genie. He pops up as a genie on that show. And there's all these different connections that you start to, oh, and then it's like you've got, uh, it's like a conspiracy theorist. You got these strings all over the wall connecting to these different pictures. You're like, yep. and then he was in there with that. It's, it, that's, Con- that's connect the, the dots. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we did, again, this is from um, Suskind. Paul Newman did three appearances, actually four. We can't find one of the kinescopes. We did three appearances when he was really young on television. And just fascinating, you know, a, a guy that is in the military and he's looking for a way out. And he's not, you know, you can see his acting skills, but it's not a sympathetic character, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think most people would look at a, a Paul Newman performance and, you know, he's sympathetic. Right here, not so much. Would you so explain to people what kinescopes are? Because it's come up a few times, and I know they're going to be people who don't know what that is. Very simple. You set up a film camera in front of a television, and you film what's on the television with that film camera. So the quality is not as good. Plus, which televisions back in the fifties and sixties weren't great. Um, I remember our first color television at home. Um, you constantly had to look at getting rid of the green. That, that's my memory. There was always like a, a green tint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that first television I mentioned earlier, you know, there was a button in the back because the picture would periodically roll. And the kinescope picked all that up. But kinescopes... They weren't valued. They were recorded at one point. And in some cases, they just got thrown out. We can't afford to store these anymore. And they wound up with a collector. And the collector died and somebody threw them out. So kinescopes are really rare. So it's basically, you know, you're filming a television performance. Sometimes that's all that survives for some of this stuff, which is scary, sad, but thank goodness we have it in some format. But here's more scary. Somebody transferred the kinescope to a three-quarter inch. And that's all that, that, that exists. So the kinescope that wasn't great to begin with is now on three-quarter inch. And it's been sitting for a while. You lose more quality there. But is the Dead Sea Scrolls any less valuable because it's in pieces? You know, it, there's still value there. Mm-hmm. The Dead Sea Scrolls on three quarter inch. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, I'm looking at things. Everything has value. It's determining how much the value is. And more importantly, how do you reach the people who would have an interest in them? Do you know anything about, and this is not really pertinent to what we're necessarily talking about. It's kind of a side conversation, but there are some shows, you know, you're talking about G.I. Joe talking about Transformers. Uh, I don't think anyone that you were working for or with at the time did this, but I know that some companies, I think it was Hallmark, took the original elements of certain shows. Um, I want to say maybe it was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was one of them, made their own transfers and destroyed the original elements. Have you heard that? No, but it wouldn't surprise me. That's well, that's that I wanted your take on that. Is that a thing where people would be, you know, they would just say, Well, let's scrap these original elements now because we have this new 480p transfer, so we don't need the originals. Yeah, I, I it would not surprise me. I mean, I know there are people who dumpster dive. Mm-hmm. There is a guy in New York who has been collecting, among other things, old commercials. And He's got commercials of cigarettes, cars, toys, food. It, it's unbelievable. Um, and there's another guy I know that has all these historical things. And he dumpster dived. You know, BBC will throw stuff out. You dumpster dive the, you know, and the garbage at the BBC and you'll find things. 
because there's only so much you can store. So sometimes, you know, like you said, they'll do the transfer. And we don't, now that we have the transfer, we don't need to keep the original source elements because it costs too much money to store it. It needs to be temperature controlled and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just not worth it for them. And then the other thing was, in some cases, there were transfer, there were things were taped and they taped over them. So somebody might tape, you know, uh, I don't know, a Lucille Ball program and somebody's looking for a tape and they record over it. It happened. It had, it's a big problem with Doctor Who. Some of those early Doctor Who episodes are just lost forever because of yep. uh, they just taped over them. The BBC taped over them. And I guess they can piece them back together with audio or you know maybe somebody's got some some recording in their their attic but uh it's yeah. not the same it's not it's not the same what is our here's i'm going to wind it down here what is our role as uh i speak for myself as a as a fan as a collector as someone who's history minded what is my role uh right now to keep this stuff alive how do, how can i support your efforts ex ex explain the realities behind what we do that you know, we don't always have the best quality elements, but from a historical standpoint, these things, these programs have enormous value. And it, it's great to say, well, it's not in HD, I don't want it, but there's a reason it doesn't exist in HD. It, it, it's cost prohibitive. And social media has been a good thing, and it's also been a terrible thing on, on so many levels. So what happens is, you know, people feed off a of negativity. So the key here, remain positive. You know, understand these are historical documents. Like I said, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls, there's only scraps of paper or papyrus, but they still have value. And you may not be interested in the picture of Dorian Gray with George C. Scott, but if you appreciate good acting and you like George C. Scott, it's something that you want to have or at least want to see. And where do you go to see it? So the more people are aware that these things exist, you know, can people apply pressure to platforms to say, look, why don't you have this available? Why can't I find a picture of Dorian Gray or, you know, noon wine? I just, you know, we may not, we may not have access to a kinescope. It may be a three quarter inch. It may be sitting at the University of Wisconsin and they did a transfer for us. And it's as good as we're going to get. We live with it. I'd rather put out something that's less than perfect to maintain the history so people can see these and enjoy them. Well, I want to thank you for keeping our pop culture history alive. It's, I've been doing it for a long time. As I said, I still love what I do. Um, I'll probably die at this desk you know, hopefully 15, 20 years from now. Um, but I'll still be doing this as long as there's a business. Um, it's just, it, 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 it's in my blood. It's who I am. I absolutely love this interview. This is everything that I want Serial at Midnight to be. Uh, it's a mix of scoops and news, but also this really deep look at, at history and at uh, the business side of things, how this stuff actually works, you know, it doesn't just show up in the store. It there's so much blood, sweat, and tears that goes into each release that we know that that we see that we can buy. And I'm thankful, grateful to be able to talk to these people. Uh, please continue to show your support for the podcast by rating, reviewing, subscribing. If you're watching this on YouTube, that thumbs up does so much. It does more than you could know. 
uh, comments, do the, the, the any engagement that you can give us. If you subscribe, please, first and foremost, subscribe. If you want to comment, leave a review. That helps a lot too. Just engage. Spread the word. That's the best thing that you can do to support this. If you want to take it above and beyond to the next level, we do have Patreon, uh, a Patreon page, and it is a very active, thriving community. There is a secret Facebook group, a private Facebook group. Just I, I call it secret because you most people don't know about it because it's private. Uh, that is just for Patreon supporters. And I mean, really, it's an active community. We're talking all day, every day about the stuff that we love. Hey, did you see this? Did you see this was coming out? Oh, I just discovered this show from you know back in the day. Uh, we really do love this stuff. And I'm so glad that you're here talking about it, celebrating it with us. If you have interview suggestions, if you have interview connections, please reach out and let me know. I would, you know the tone of the channel, you know the kind of people that I like to talk to, so let's keep it going. Uh, you can email the show, serialmidnight at gmail.com. Visit us at serialmidnight.com to never miss a post. There's uh, video posts, there's audio posts, there's written reviews. You can also check out our Letterboxd. Uh, there's links in the description of this, however you're watching this or listening to this. You can find all the links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much. We've got another great episode coming for you in seven days. Take care. Until next time, I will catch you.